Um, you know, one of the things that, that I've recently learned is um, the importance of not allowing your personality to become a prison. Right? Your wiring, your natural inclination never exempts you from obedience. And I'm wired very naturally to be inquisitive, to be analytical. I'm not a, I was raised in a Christian home, but that's not why I'm a Christian. Um, I'm a Christian because I made the decision that that worldview was, was the best worldview for me. And I think to some degree that being analytical has served me well, but it's, there's a part of my spiritual journey I feel like it was a bit limiting. I was a student of God's word just because of, I've learned that whatever area you're ignorant in, you're suffering. And there was great pain I went through in my life, not because I had bad intentions. I just didn't have reliable information. But recently, I, I discovered the limitations of that as it relates to my own walk with, with God. And about six years ago, I really got introduced to some aspects of contemplative spirituality. And I leaned into more of being with him than reading about him. And in a mind that was, that was always running begin to practice the spiritual disciplines of solitude and sitting with God and being with him. And it shifted me in a way that made me really uncomfortable. I started getting these promptings and these urges and this insight. And I feel like from time to time I'd see things about people that you couldn't see with the five senses. For years, I kind of sat on that because uh, in the charismatic circle, it can be a little charismania. <laughs> like, fam, that's weird. That's. But one day I was convicted by Paul's word to the church at Thessalonica when he says, do not quench the spirit. If there's a, there's a prompting, then you're responsible for obedience let God be responsible for outcomes. And as I was standing right there in the middle of worship, I saw Zion on this stage. And this is the thought that came to my heart, my mind. That the child in that womb is a sign of things to come. that this is a pregnant house. And I'm not sure what all the house is going to give birth to, but I do know it's going to give birth to new versions of you. There is a you that you haven't met yet. And God's going to introduce you to that you in this house. And all throughout scripture, we see examples of God radically changing people's lives in a way where the old, where the new version of them is nothing like the old version of them. And he gave them name changes so that they would never be reminded of who they used to be. And I am telling you, It's a pregnant house. Pregnancy. Tension is birth pains. Labor pains. I started thinking, um, I was telling Stephen in the back, I don't know, at least in my experience, if I've ever seen anything like this. 
not two leaders who are both in their prime make a decision like this. And Jimmy, I told you this in private. I'm going to say it again publicly. God has never required anyone to give him anything and he give them something inferior in exchange. Never. And the child in the womb is a sign of things to come. God has birthed you and Irene. And now that you've been reborn, you're getting ready to birth something that your eyes haven't seen and your ears have not heard. You've been freed up, not just to be free. You've been freed up because your next requires this kind of freedom. God has, by his providence and grace, set you in a house like this, planted you in a spiritual family like this. Your name's Brian, right? That's your name? This is what I, I want, I want to encourage you with this. You've been used, but you haven't quite been seen. You've served those who didn't quite see. Like David. Kingly anointing. And fathers don't even think enough of you to call you to the party. This is not only your seeing season, you're about to be seen. Father, I thank you for what you are doing in this house, and I thank you for the privilege to contribute to this in some way. I am amazed by your work and your grace, and I pray today for the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, the anointing that removes burdens and destroys yokes to equip and empower me to make the deposit you've called me to, de to deposit today. I pray that you will go before me and make the hearts of your people fertile soil for the seed of your word. And I thank you tonight that our time will be fruitful. Our time will be a time that adds value as you position this house to step into the next chapter of your story for it. Knowing you like we know you, we already have you. We already have these things that we've asked you for and we believe in you tonight for truth and fire. And I ask this in the name of the one who saved my life and that name is Jesus if you agree in faith I want you to put your hands together tonight and let's give God praise <laughs> Stephen and Jimmy Jimmy you get to a point in um, well I have at least where when it comes to things like this it's not where you go it's who invites you and I'm honored by the invitation to contribute uh, to what God is, God is doing. And um, I don't know, you know, Travis Green, that was just stupid. That was just stupid good. And I looked over at one of my, a couple of my guys and I said, that's just oily. I'm just so inspired by your ministry, so blessed by it. Uh, very rarely have I seen anyone so great and so genuine at the same time. And so we're grateful. Are we grateful for his ministry? We love you, brother. And, um, and I had a couple of guys that, that come with me, came with me that are on our team. Doug, who is on our team, and Brandon Freeman. We're launching a church in Atlanta in the fall of 2021. And our location leader is here, Brandon, and uh, one of my mentees is also here, Kenny Leonard, and thank you all for hanging out with me. Um, yo, there's something on my heart. I want to share it, and uh, I know when preachers say this, they don't mean it. I mean it, though. I'm not going to be long. <laughs> <laughs> I 
uh, I'll bring you greetings from my, also my amazing wife who's um, holding it down, my girlfriend. Uh, man, uh, college sweetheart and mother to all my children. Wife and my baby's mother, same person. So there's something I want to read. I've been thinking and praying through, reflecting, reflecting on what, what direction to go. And um, I want to share this with you, um, family. Uh, I, want to, I want to read a verse of scripture from uh, the book of Exodus chapter 13. And I just want to read two verses beginning at verse 17. Exodus chapter 13. Uh, I want to read two verses beginning at verse 17. And I'm reading from the New International Version of the Scriptures, and this is what it says. It says, when, um, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. Please listen to this next phrase. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. I want to pause for the cause. I want to tag a title to this text. The creative genius, Tim Bowman. I know you could probably do something amazing with this. Y'all flying hot air balloons. And it's just, just, I was bragging on you on the way up here. I said, that guy's a genius. I want to talk from this subject. I'm on my way up. I'm on my way up. I want to begin our time together by reminding some and informing others uh, that the actions of God are always intentional. By that, I mean his actions are never an end unto themselves. They are always a means to an end. Which means whenever he does something that you do know about. He is simultaneously doing something that you don't know about. Because the actions of God are intentional. So when he is doing something you can see, he is also doing something you can't see. Because whatever he does is intentional. So if he does something, he's doing something intentionally. But if he does nothing, he's doing nothing intentionally. So this means when he's doing something, he's doing something. And it means when he's doing nothing, he's still doing something. Because he's doing nothing intentionally. So this means we should consistently praise and express gratitude when God is doing something. But we should, with equal fervor and enthusiasm, express gratitude and praise when God's doing nothing. Because even when he's doing nothing, he's doing something. And can we even in this introduction pause and upset and unnerve the adversary because he wants you to think when God's doing nothing, he's doing nothing? I want somebody to praise him now for nothing. Why are you praising him? For nothing. Because if he's doing nothing, he's doing it intentionally. It's intentional. Not haphazard, not random, not some bright idea. It's intentional. Moving on the hearts of people, planting desires and impulses and promptings and urgings. It's intentional. And this is comforting, family, but it is also confusing. 
It's comforting because I know God's always doing something. But it's confusing because I don't always know what he's doing. And I think it's important for me to lift something today that that you might find a little theologically problematic. Here it is. Uh, um, There are a number of words that are often used to describe God. I want to give you one today that I think is important. It's biblically faithful, but it's often overlooked. God is unpredictable. See how quiet right there? No, I'm not, I'm not disputing the reality of his immutability. He's unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He was good. He is good. He will be good. He was a way maker. He is a way maker. He will be a way maker. He was a door opener. He is a door opener. He will be a door opener. The only reason some of us are still sane in the membrane is because God's been consistent. But listen to me, although there's no inconsistency in God's character, there's unpredictability in his activity. We know who he will be, but we can't always predict what he will do. There are times... Well, people like Bartimaeus screamed, Jesus stood still, addressed the issue immediately. And then there are times where Lazarus gets sick and Mary and Martha send word for him. And he stays where he is and doesn't arrive until four days after Lazarus is in the tomb. There's no inconsistency in his character, but there is unpredictability in his activity. Listen to me. God is full of surprises. Therefore, the course and the quality of your life is going to be determined by how you handle what you didn't see coming. Did you hear what I just said? But because God is intentional, he's preparing you for what he has for you without letting you in. on the fact that you're going through preparation. Did you hear what I just said? I I, I said he's the only one that'll take you to school and not tell you you in class. And it's only when you get to your next in your future that you realize you were in school in your past. See, you think this merger is random and a coincidence. I'm telling you, God's been working, preparing hearts, preparing people, readying the city, getting you ready for what he's got ready for you. Yeah, so when he was working on, in that, on that humility yesterday, it's because you would need it today. <laughs> And when he was working on that emotional health yesterday, it was because you were going to need it today. And when he was working on that generosity, that heart of generosity yesterday, it was because you're going to need it today. See, whatever God is burdening your heart with to address in this season is a prophetic picture of what you're going to need in the next season. Did you hear what I just said? And for some of you in this place, I think that's a reason to celebrate. That's a reason to rejoice because what God has been doing with some of you has been relentless. It's been stalker-like. He will not let his foot up off the gas. He keeps correcting you and convicting you. He keeps yanking you back when you step out of line because he knows I got something for them in their tomorrow that requires them being faithful in their today. There's no inconsistency in his character. There's unpredictability in his activity. And our presence here tonight is a revelation of that. I want to tell you something. It's possible for us to see the same thing and not see the same thing. It's the principle of perspective. 
where you sit determines what you see. And what you see determines what you do. Where you sit determines what you see. And what you see determines what you do. Where you sit determines what you see. And what you see determines what you do. Where you sit determines what you see. And what you see determines what you do. And this is why I can look at the same thing God's looking at and not see the same thing. Because he's got a different vantage point. He see, I see to the corner. He sees around the corner. I see to the hill. He sees over the hill. I see today. God sees tomorrow. And the things that he does or does not do in my today might be confusing to me because I don't have access to what he's already seen in my tomorrow. Different people see this merger different ways. Different people see this merger, and it doesn't mean they're wrong. It means they're human. It means there's that there's the simultaneous existence of conflicting emotions. Gladness and grief. So we're just supposed to ignore that? No, no, no. Not me. It's, it's gladness and grief. Grief. Anticipation. Excitement. And anxiety. Conflicting emotions. Existing simultaneously. But where you sit determines what you see. And what you see affects how you feel. And I want to tell you, I was reading this narrative in Exodus, and I felt like this narrative in some sense is amazing. It was this prophetic picture of, of, in some sense, metaphorically, what's happening here and what we are celebrating tonight. This, this isn't just an exit out of an old season. This is an elevation into a new one. The, the text says they went, are y'all, are y'all following me? They went out and up. See, this, this story that I just read, family, is couched within the context of a book of the Bible named Exodus. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible because the word Exodus means exit. That's what it means. And so the narratives contained in this book are narratives that highlight to us and reveal how God led Israel in their exodus out of Egypt. The name of the book is Revelation that should produce celebration because if God God is the God of the exit. That means I'm never trapped. I'm going to say that one more time. If God is the God of the exit, that means I'm never trapped. I may look trapped, but I'm not trapped. And I may feel trapped, and I, but I'm not trapped. And people may think I'm trapped, but I'm not trapped. Because if God's got a part of Red Sea, he'll get me out. If he's got to knock down a Jericho wall, he will get me through. If God is the God of the exit, I'm never trapped. Israelites were under the oppressive regime of Egypt for hundreds of years, over three centuries. Listen to me. And God let them stay there until they asked to get out. Read the narrative. Because God will let you live on whatever level you settle for. I said he'll let you live on 
whatever level you settle for. But when he gets ready to move you, he will fuel you with frustration because frustration is an indication that you no longer belong in the space that you're in. One writer calls it holy discontent. He makes you supernaturally dissatisfied with what you used to be impressed by. If you want to know if God's taking you to another level, check the level of your frustration. Because if he's frustrating you, that means he's getting ready to move you. I want somebody to praise him for frustration right now. Read the narrative. They start crying out to God for deliverance. The narrative says God then starts talking to a deliverer. They start asking God for deliverance and God starts talking to a leader. <laughs> Did you hear what I just said? They're, cry, they're crying to God. We've been immobile generations. We've got generational patterns of immobility. And we've got generational scripts that we've been operating by. Generational patterns, I mean mindsets that they had adopted. And as they start crying out to God for deliverance, God starts burdening the heart of a leader to go get his people. Now, this bothered me a little bit. It bothered me because the Bible's clear. They start talking to God, requesting deliverance. But the story doesn't say to us that God starts talking to them. That matters to me. They're talking to God, but the text doesn't say God starts talking back to them. They start talking to God about the problem. God starts talking to the answer. And while people are, uh, and while people are complaining about the absence of God's activity, they have no idea God's trying to talk a man into a yes. Who is waiting on your yes? You know why we're here today? Because Stephen Chandler said yes. We're here today because Jimmy Rollins said yes. Who is being held up? Because God's trying to talk you into a yes. Just because God... See, I got some Pentecostal roots too, Travis. Just because God is not talking to you about the problem does not mean God is not working on the answer. Sometimes God is silent because he's busy talking to your answer that's about to show up unannounced at your doorstep. Listen to this. God starts burning bushes and <laughs> things of this particular nature. And, and, and Moses is initially very uncomfortable with the assignment. Listen to Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. He says, who am I? I don't have time to deal with that. Who am I? So God offers, God introduces Moses to his calling. Your calling is your invitation for your participation in the reason for your creation. It's when God, did you hear? It's, your, it's God's invitation for your participation in the reason for your creation. It's when you get to a point in your life and God looks at you and says, now you're through doing it your way. Now let me introduce you to the reason you were born. But by the time many of us get introduced to it, we become a person that's the exact opposite of it. So you believe your past more than your creator. Moses is like, I can't do this. God's like, you were born for this. 
what do you mean you can't do this? I had this in mind when I spared your life. And when your mother hid you by the Nile, I had this in mind. And when Pharaoh's daughter saw you, I had you in mind. When you were raised in the palace, I had this in mind. What do you mean you can't do this? Moses, you're responding to me based on who you've been because you've confused who you've been with who you were created to be. Moses doesn't even know he's a deliverer. He doesn't even know he has this... <laughs> This level, oh, I just talked about this yesterday in our film. He, th this level of what Alan Hirsch calls apostolic genius, an uncommon IQ, an unteachable know-how. He doesn't even know that's in him because sometimes it takes circumstances to put a demand on what's in you that you didn't know was there until God put you in a situation. Well, the only way you survive is to reach within and tap into a version of you that you didn't even know existed. Is there anybody here that can look back over your life and say, I didn't know how strong I was until I had to carry some things and walk through some things that I thought would have crushed me. But I got a revelation, not just of God. I got a revelation of what God put on the inside of me. Moses is talking to God. I mean, he starts saying stuff like, I'm slow of speech. Because here's the language God uses when he calls him. He says, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh. So the operative word there is speaking. He's like, you don't want me to write it down or nothing? I'm... He said, you calling me. You're calling me, but your call is exposing my deepest level of insecurity. You try, you try. Yeah, yeah that, that, that calling it, it exposed my deepest level of insecurity. Moses is like, God, I can't do this. God's like, I know. And the reason I called you is because you know. Y'all missed it. He said, God, I can't do this. God's like, I know. But the reason I called you is because you know you can't. Because this assignment is too significant to fumble. I can't, have, I can't have anybody playing with my people with this. So because you know you can't do this without me, that's not inadequacy. That's an insurance policy that's going to keep you dependent on me. And as long as you're dependent on me, I can trust you with my people. can I do this? How can this happen? God says, I know you know. And because you know, I can trust you to never try to do it without me. This is crazy because all throughout scripture, when we think of divine usage, we think of gift usage. You can be so good with your gift, you can do it without God. Especially with preaching, you can preach stuff you never live. Did you hear what I just said? I mean, you can preach stuff you never live. He says, no, no, no. I'm not just going to use your gift. I want you to understand your need for me. So Moses agrees. Y'all tired of me? I'm almost done. <laughs> Moses, Moses agrees. But, but then he says, he says, I'm going to the people you're sending me to. Uh, but one, 
You need to go with me. Because I don't know if these people are going to receive me. So when I go, who, who do I need to say sent me? And I need to know, because I can't just say God, because it is a polytheistic society, so they got all kinds of gods. They're going to ask me which one. So Moses is like, I need a name. I need a name. Me and you, God, are making this union. I was minding, I was minding my business, and you start setting bushes on fire and stuff, <laughs> telling me you and me are gonna partner together. That there's this divine joining, this union. I need a name. Who shall I say sent me? Moses gets his pen. God says, I am. He says, I am. God said, that's it. He said, wait. No, no. I am who? That I am. That I am. He said, that's it? Yeah, that's it. He gave him Yahweh, or which is transliterated, Jehovah, right? which is actually God's covenant name, right? It's actually more of a prefix than a name. This is why throughout the Old Testament specifically, you see God giving <laughs> detail that follows the prefix Jehovah. He said, he said right now, you're going to need me to be so much to you. You just need to know I'm a covenant-keeping God. So I'm going to give you Jehovah. Now you put a blank behind it. And when you get in a certain situation, I fill in the blank. And when you need provision, Jireh. When you need peace, Shalom. When you need company, Shama. When you need victory, Nisi. Is there anybody here that knows he's a fill in the blank kind of God? He says, if I sent you, I'll fill in the blank. If I orchestrated it, I'll fill in the blank. If I called you to it, I'll fill in the blank. You just need to know whatever you need, I'll fill in the blank. When you run out of space, I'll fill in the blank. When you run out of room, I'll fill in the blank. Because I'm the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. I'm almost done. 13 minutes and 55 seconds. Here it is. Then God says to Pharaoh, God says, excuse me, to Moses, he says, now listen, Pharaoh's not going to let them go without a mighty hand compelling him. So I'm going to stretch out my hand. And then he says these words in Exodus chapter three, verse 21. He says, I'll make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go out empty handed. That's Exodus chapter three. He says, I'm going to make Pharaoh favorably disposed so that when you leave, you will not go out empty-handed. I'm going to make him favorably disposed. So the, the one who took dignity from you, I'm going to make him add value to you. Listen to this. I'm going to make him favorably disposed. And this is one of the ways now, uh, Old Testament uses this word favor more, New Testament uses the word grace more. But this is one of the ways favor works. Favor gives Pharaoh's temporary insanity. Oh my God. So they lose their reasoning for a minute and bless you. And then by the time they get their sense back, it's too late to take it back. 
Israel. <laughs> Chapter 12, it says the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. I want you to see this union. I want you to remember this. God told Moses this in chapter three, but it didn't happen until chapter 12. So sometimes we got to wrap a head around the fact that the season of announcement is not the season of fulfillment. God says, I don't always announce it and fulfill it in the same season, but if it hasn't happened yet, you might just be in chapter four. Keep on living until you get to chapter five, until you get to chapter six, until you get to chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 10, chapter 11. And then when you get to whatever your chapter 12 is, God makes good on his word. So Pharaoh agrees to let Israel go. And the Bible says, we read it. We read it together. Exodus chapter 13. When he let them go, he didn't lead them on the road toward Philistine country, though that was shorter. Wait a minute now. There's a route that's shorter. You intentionally do not take me the short route. Text says he led them around by the desert, read the text, toward the Red Sea. He said, no, I can't take you by the way to Philistine. My actions are intentional. So I didn't take you that way because that way was inhabited with enemies that you weren't ready to fight. Because although I'm getting you out of Egypt, Egypt is still in you. And I hadn't had enough time to reorient the way you see you. Now, if I'm fighting with you, you can handle them. But it's not enough for me to know that. You got to know that too. She says, I know what battles you're not ready for, so let me take you the long way. And sometimes... We get wounds we can avoid because of our preference for shortcuts. Sometimes God's way is not the short way. Now, I want you to see something. I'm going to wrap up. I want you to see something. I want you to see the text says God is the one that led them around the desert toward the Red Sea. So the only reason they run into the Red Sea is because they're following divine leadership. What does that do to our theology? How I obey God and obedience runs me into a problem. Let me go to this side because I'm trying to find... I can't, I'm trying to find the real section. I, I said, what do you do when obedience feels like it's putting your welfare in jeopardy? God, now I'm trying to obey you. I'm just not sure on how this is going to work out for me. He leads them around by the Red Sea. This is so interesting to me. And the people begin to panic. They're excited. But when they run into an obstacle that obedience led them to, they begin to panic. And they have to find an object of their frustration. They believe God sent Moses when they were leaving Egypt. But that same Moses became the object of their frustration when they start panicking. They said, what are we going to do? I love this. Notice Moses' confidence. See, I want you to see the evolution of a man who was incredibly insecure. I want you to see the evolution of a man who starts walking in Godfidence. 
I want you to see this. This man that was uniquely and incredibly insecure when faced with pressure from a people who are filled with anxiety looks at them boldly and say, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. In other words, Moses teaches us something. He said, there are some battles that God fights through you, but then there are other battles that God fights for you. And sometimes it takes just as much faith to do nothing and stand still as it does to try to fix it yourself. So they get to this Red Sea. Pharaoh's behind them. And many of, many of us have heard this story. If you may have grown up in church Sunday school or vacation Bible school. or Here it is. Many of us heard this story. God, Moses asked God what to do. And God tells Moses, raise your staff and stretch out your hand. Raise the staff. Miracles happen when you raise the staff. I'm going to say that one more time. I said miracles happen when you raise the staff. Red Sea's part when the staff is raised, when the staff is elevated. See, here, here, here it is, at least this is my philosophy of, 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 of pastoral leadership is this. Um, I want our team to want to be more than used. I want you to want to be raised. See that? He raised his staff, stretched out his hand. Listen to this family. It's interesting. So interesting. Because I thought at this point, when Moses does this, the Red Sea parts. But that's not what the text says. In Exodus 14, it says, Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind him. And the pillar of cloud also moved from in front of them and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. And throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so that neither went near the other all night long. I want you to catch this family. Please don't. It's a different position of divine presence. The God who was leading them gets behind them so that the thing in the past, they're chasing them trying to destroy them cannot get through watch this the hedge that God puts around them are y'all following this yeah maybe it's this maybe maybe it's the same imagery that Satan uses when he's having a conversation with God regarding Job when God asked Job Satan where have you been and he said I've been looking for somebody's life to disrupt God said have you considered my servant Job and Satan says yes but you've got a hedge of protection around him his household and all he possesses Here's my question. If God is the only omniscient being that exists, this means Satan is not omniscient. So my question is, how does Satan know that God put a hedge around Job unless Satan tried to get to him previously and could not? You know what this means? This means that Job was being protected when he didn't even know he was in danger. See, sometimes we celebrate the things that God protected us from that we did see. I think we ought to give God a hedge praise and thank him for protecting us from some things we did not see. The Bible says when Moses raises that staff and stretches out that hand, the wind from God starts blowing it didn't happen immediately the text says all that night the wind starts blowing and the red sea begins to part and it says that israel walks through on dry ground now i'm going to tell you something as i prepare to take my seat this is what i know i don't know a lot about geography or geology i do know that the ground underneath the sea should not be dry. That's one thing I know. But the apostle Paul said that this miracle was a picture of redemption. He says it's a metaphor for baptism. 
so then this is what I know if the if the if the the, the land underneath the Red Sea had not been dry and muddy the mud would have created tracks and what attracts tracks are evidence of where you come from but them walking through the Red Sea is a picture of redemption because once you are redeemed by Jesus he does not leave any evidence of where you come from is there anybody here grateful that God erased the evidence that when you walked in here you didn't leave tracks I'm done and Pharaoh and his army see what they do and they try to cross the Red Sea too and they drown because you drown when you follow word God didn't give you They go to the other side and Miriam gets that tambourine and they begin to express gratitude and praise and thanksgiving for what God has done. Please don't miss this. The text describes it this way. They went out of Egypt and went up ready for battle. Gosh. Now, I don't know. This up, I didn't do the research. This up could have been geographically. But even if it was, I think there's some metaphorical implications that are relevant to the reason we're here tonight. This is Maybe metaphorically, them going up geographically speaks to them being elevated psychologically. No, no, because the text says they're ready for battle. But wait a minute. Read the text. It says he didn't take them the short way lest they see war and turn back to Egypt. Are y'all ready for this? Are you sure? This is my whole message. This is my whole message. This is the one thought I spent the past 45 minutes trying to support. <laughs> the miracle, miracles are intended not just to change circumstances. They're intended to change mindsets. Did you hear what I just said? The miracle wasn't just in their exit. The miracle was in their elevation. It is when what they saw God do, it's, it's when they observed what God did and allowed that to shift and to change, not just the way they saw God, but the way they saw themselves. So here's my question, Union. How do you see you now? This is a miracle. But what has it done to your mindset? Because the text says with these people, they became ready for battle. They became ready for battle. They became ready to take ground, and that's what they did, didn't they? They took ground. They took territory. They took ground from the Amalekites. They took ground from the Canaanites. They took ground from the Jebusites. They took ground from the Parasites. They took ground from the Amorites because they had a mindset that was ready for battle. So here is my question, Union. This is amazing, but how do you see you now? Because the miracle is intense. Not just to change the circumstance, but to change the mind. God is speaking through this. This is, when God speaks, it's not just uh, verbal proclamations. God speaks through visible demonstrations. 
he's speaking through this. He's saying, I can do anything. Now, what does that do for your mind? How do you see you? You're on your way. Where are y'all going from here? Up. Where are you 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 going from here? Up. I'm on my way up. What is the miracle of this merger done for your mind? Now. Do you really believe God can do anything? Are you ready for battle? And are you ready to take ground for the kingdom of God until the glory of God covers the DMV the way the waters cover the sea? my way up I'm about to take my seat but I told y'all earlier six years I don't know I've been studying this stuff I think I think I'm a monk I just like my wife too much praise God but I believe preaching should lead from prayer to prayer Because the implementation of revelation requires divine assistance. So I just, I, I want to pray. I want to pray for this house. I want to pray what God, for what God is doing. I want to pray God's blessing on this incredible team. You don't go as far as your dream. You go as far as your team. That God, by his providence and grace, has strategically set you here. I want to pray. So just as a, as a sign, hey, however high makes you comfortable, because if you aren't comfortable, you aren't going to be focused. I'd rather you be focused. But whatever level is your level of comfort, would you just lift that hand as I pray over you? Father, I thank you. You said the entrance of your word brings light. And I thank you that light has come to the minds and hearts of your people. I thank you for this divine union. And I pray first of all over this house. Father, you, you use the word family more than any other word in the New Testament to describe church. And I pray that would be the spirit of this house. A spiritual family. I thank you for that. So that when people walk through these doors, whatever they are not getting in their natural family will be supplemented and substituted by this spiritual family. I pray for that. I pray for a divine joining. May your Holy Spirit knit our hearts together like glue. I pray for a supernatural unity because your word says where there's unity, you command the blessing. I pray for this team. I thank you. I thank you for Aaron's and hers. I thank you for Shims and Japheth's. And I pray, Father, that as they serve your house, may nothing go lacking in theirs. I pray that as, as many of them have offered Isaac's, that you would show them rams in the bush. I pray for apostolic genius. I pray for uncommon IQ. I pray for creativity, insight, the favor of God on this team and on this house. 
I thank you for all that you're doing. And may it be said of this house, as it was said of the early church, these are they that have turned the world upside down. In Jesus' name, amen.